How do we abolish prisons? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Corey Massimino. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Corey Massimino. Corey is an independent scholar. He is a fellow at the Centre for a Stateless Society. His research focuses on virtue ethics, market process economics, and anarchist political theory. He is the author of Two Cheers for Rothbardianism and Ayn Rand's novel contribution, Aristotelian Liberalism. His writings have also appeared in publications including The Guardian, The Independent, and Playboy. He lives in Florida with his wife and their four cats. Corey, welcome to The Curious Task. Thanks for having me on the show. I've listened to a few episodes before and I enjoy it. So happy to be on. Thanks very much, Corey. And, and it's great to have you on. So we base each episode on a theme and question and go over the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, how do we abolish prisons? And really what we're going to do is sort of a general tour through the prison abolitionist mind, if you will, and stance. I'll say to the audience sort of right off the bat that I'm going to probably agree with pretty much everything, if not all of what Corey has to say in this episode. So I've sort of structured things to basically be a tour through this point of view and the different types of thinking behind it and so on and so forth. So off the bat, let's get the disclaimers out of the way. So the context set for the rest of the episode, for those unfamiliar with you or your work, Corey, is it fair to call you a prison abolitionist to start? Yeah, yeah, I, I think that I think that way of thinking about it is useful. Um, I've definitely uh, defended that term and that way of thinking about it for many years. Um, it kind of became more popular, I would say, in the zeitgeist the last maybe, you know, three, four years. Um, so it's been interesting to see a position that I, that I have, have, you know, thought about it a, a bit and, and, and tried to articulate and try to defend um, all of a sudden be engaged with on a, on a much wider scale. You know, you see articles in, like the New York Times last few years, places like that that are giving yeah. a platform to this kind of perspective, which is pretty wild um, to think about. Uh, so. Yeah. So, and I've seen some people, maybe they're arguing in bad faith and stuff, but I've seen some people accuse uh, prison abolitionists and even mean conversation when maybe they're not understanding 100% what I'm saying correctly uh, about basically not being full prison abolitionists. They say if you define the way justice and punishment and so on and so forth works, really you're just at some point redefining what a prison is, so to speak. So, just to kind of get a bit of that sort of thing out of the way, um, I don't want to say define prison, but I do want to say when you want someone listening to this conversation thinking about what you mean by what we're abolishing here uh what do you mean by prison is it someone simply trapped in a cell is it the idea the state's going to hold you or detain you in general what do you mean by prison what should people picture in their head that that you'd like to see us rid of so i think uh so i I have a couple points i want to make on on what you just said the first is that just in, in regards to terminology in general and and um the concepts underneath the terminology that we're trying to get at with our terminology, uh, because so often we're talking past each other. Um, even, even people acting in good faith, because sometimes the landscape is so complicated, can, can end up talking past each other. Uh, and, and especially when it comes to a lot of radical uh, political viewpoints, um, you know, not just prison abolition, but, but, but lots of things regarding the state, uh, regarding things like patriarchy or racial supremacy, um, uh, radical viewpoints that are, common now but radical to 300 years ago like democracy or the abolition of slavery i mean these things i think it's always kind of up in the air what exactly we're trying to pin down with the terms the state 
or patriarchy or slavery or monarchy, the things that there's been these abolitionist movements uh, around um, to varying degrees of success or lack thereof. But, uh, you know, so it's it's always this kind of open question, I feel like, of of what is what what is the institution we're talking about? I think this is a great question to start with because it's important to get clear and try to figure out particularly uh, what term or what concept you're trying to, to get at with whatever terms you're using. So I think in the case of prison abolition, I think a lot of people maybe don't get uh, don't sense the rationale behind the, uh, a viewpoint ra- that's that radical, or at least radical in that way, in that direction, right? Uh, because it certainly seems like uh, you know there's a lot of people who do a lot of very bad things to other people, uh, you know, and so we're left with that kind of brute fact. And then so you have another group of people saying, well, you know, let's abolish what seems to be the structures. The only structures apparently um, that are that are in some way constraining or or controlling or, or, or otherwise averting some sort of harm that you know this 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 group of people supposedly are in. Uh, so I, I think it's important to get clear on why prison abolitionists are kind of motivated by the ideal of abolishing prisons in the first place. If you don't see why it's maybe an aspirational ideal or some sort of noble goal, you know, if you're not even there, then you're never going to see maybe the the practical appeal. And I think right. the reason that pr- prison abolitionists uh, feel so viscerally about this and and and, and really want to try to achieve a world that we don't rely on prisons uh, within is because imprisonment is really a kind of slavery. And it's really in practice a property claim that the state and that in practice the prison and then the functionaries of the prison, the guards, uh, have over another person. So I think prison abolitionists often, and they don't always say it in these words, but often see prison as another variety of slavery. Right. And then I think that opens it up. Okay, you know, that's, I thought we abolished slavery. I thought, you know, slavery is, is beyond the pale, is, is obviously heinous. That's a radical view that everyone has now accepted, right? That was once a totally minority fringe radical view, but now it's just common sense, you know, incorporated into our, our, our understandings of the world almost automatically as we're brought up. Uh, but I think prison abolitionists basically are trying to look at what is, are really the conditions of imprisonment, the power of guards and the state and the functionaries of the prison to compel prisoners to be anywhere that they like at any time that they like uh, to violate any rights that they wish in, in regards in regards to their lives. Um, you know, prisoners have no rights to privacy, no rights to movement, no rights to to virtually anything, they, they don't even have rights to be free from violence. We like to think that they do, but obviously in practice they don't, both by other prisoners and guards. Um, so I think once we step back and see, you know, we're trying to look at where, it, uh, you know, the state and, and, and prisons have, have in some sense enacted a claim of property over another person. Um, that's the level of control at play. And I think, I think, non-abolitionists or at least me when i'm when i'm thinking in that perspective obviously i was never always an abolitionist um i think it it ultimately is an acceptance of a degree of slavery for practical means supposedly you know to ensure safety to increase safety to deter to prevent harm to others outside the prison and so these are noble goals too uh but i think the prison system has has accepted slavery as a means to achieve them and what is in fact a kind of enslavement of another person now it doesn't mean it's the same as all other kinds of slavery it doesn't mean it's the same as the way chattel slavery operated for instance but 
it is there's been many forms of slavery uh, throughout throughout humanity's uh, lifetime, and I don't think we've gotten rid of them all. And I think once you start to think and look at, at the, really the horribleness of the conditions of a prisoner and the sense in which they're at the mercy and lack the rights in relation to their guards and superiors, and, and oftentimes just other prisoners as well, uh, it looks a lot like a, a condition of slavery, and that is a property claim over another person. And so if you see how heinous and horrible it is, it's a lot harder to accept that that's just like, you know, sort of, well, this is a practical, this is an exception to the abolition of slavery. This is something we live with. This is just how it is. This is just a perfectly, you know, sensible or at least in some cases reasonable way of dealing with solution, uh, problems and, and solving them. And so right. I think that is what prison abolitionists are, are trying to abolish. Yeah, and that makes sense the way you, you, you know you pointed out, like whether it's like a minimum security prison, a maximum security prison, or you know a prison in you know some of the caricature ways people think of like a, a like low budget Latin American prison or a fancy American prison. The fact is, what's fueling that, like you said, is the property claim and the claim of control over someone's life. How it's actually manifested is is really an entirely different story, right? Yeah, I, I think it's easy to 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 narrow. You're totally right. The focus to a particular kind of prison. Um, you know, we look at immigration detention centers. We look at a lot of a lot of, you know, uh, uh, historically asylums or other mental health facilities. And, and, and in some sense, you even get, you know, this is kind of a tangential issue in some ways, but to, to how schooling and compulsory schooling operates. And it seems like all of these things share something right. in common, I think. And it doesn't mean they share in the same way or to the same degree necessarily, but it all looks like a, a compulsory claim to to order someone to be somewhere uh, of your choosing at the time of your choosing and to do what you choose and, and they have no right to refuse. Right. Absolutely. And you mentioned something in there that I thought was really interesting too, because like you, you, you separate it as you're walking through some of your phrasing there, the sort of goals, which you say there might be some common ground in a discussion. If you're just talking to like a non uh, prison abolitionist, let's say, you know, the goal of, you know, wanting to ensure there's protection, wanting to ensure some people are safe, let's say from, you know, just for the sake of caricature arguments and like, you know, uh, repeat violent criminal that just like is, you know, wanting to kill people. So you're saying the goal there, that's where we need to start the discussion, but we don't necessarily are, we're not necessarily able to jump from the goal of that to, okay, prisons are the answer. That seems to be the disconnect. Cause I'm, the reason I'm saying this is because some people, in my opinion, when they're not really um, being very either charitable or honest about a discussion, will often say, oh, you know, anarchists or whatever, they just want, you know, live and let live, everybody run around, there's no order kind of thing. But but I know that's clearly not true. And I, that's why I want to highlight what you said there, because I think it's very important that you're not saying we're just going to forget about the goals of safe communities and people not doing things to each other. It's just how we go about that, right? Oh, yes, absolutely. I mean, I... I, I... I, I think the the idea that prison abolitionists are, um, I guess what for uh, what uh, some people I guess think yeah you're explicitly you must be for whatever crimes that someone in prison has committed uh, if you want to abolish that system but obviously that doesn't follow um, prison prison isn't this automatic magical box you know that solves these problems um, inherently anything more than other uh, solutions uh, past present and future I guess but uh, yeah. Um, that and and but so 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 I I, I agree uh, that that yeah the, I don't know how the conversation is going to get started from a place of maybe bad faith or misunderstanding there but but um, but certainly prison abolitionists are 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 uh, no you know the whole the whole the whole ideal comes from safety for all or justice or or, or equality for all um, not. Um, warlords are running rampant and violating rights i mean from the right. very opposite of that 
Yeah. And speaking of then, you know, safety, justice for all, and, and the, sort of like that, that sort of aspect about it, um, one of the things that people seem to throw around when people talk about, even just forget about abolishing, even just reforming prisons, if we even start with that, yeah. some people talk yeah. about, you know, uh, like, oh, well, one of the problems you're going to have to deal with is what do you do with these, you know, tons of people that are in the prisons? And, you know, before I we did the show today, I pulled a Bureau of Justice statistic that basically said at year end 2021, there was about... 1.2 million people in prison. Now, some people say that, um, you know, okay, so now what are you going to do? You want to get rid of prisons. You have 1.2 million people that you have to deal with. But I get from your writings and then even some of my own and other people that talk on this yeah. issue. I mean, like, look, like, let, let's actually pare down this problem here. I mean, it, it doesn't seem to me that you would think that you actually have, first of all, first and foremost, 1.2 million people to deal with. That would be an assumption that everyone in prison is a hardened criminal needs to be there for like decades, right? Like that's the kind of feeling I get for some of you written. At least to start, we have to understand the scale of the problem, right? Uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure what you're asking. If, if, if everyone in prison, uh, uh, is like a severe violent threat to others necessarily. Yeah. I, I, I want you to sort of dr- I, address the oh. idea that a lot of people, a lot of people sort of jump to that conclusion. Yeah. If you're in prison, you should be locked up kind of oh, thing. And, okay. And, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I, it's, 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 uh, it's hard for me to wrap my head around. um taking that. That's so for granted, um, you know, cause that's, that's, that's very different from the view that just maybe some people belong in prison or something like that, but it really takes, I feel like a huge leap to say, you know, because someone was put in handcuffs by a person with a badge and then taken in a car down to a cell and then locked in that cell and, you know, they, they deserve it or they must have done something that warranted it. Um, you know, clearly not. Um, many people know, you know, many people who, who've suffered imprisonment, either, you know, we have issues of mere false imprisonment, um, which happens uh, uh, far, you know, far too far beyond what's what could be in the realm of acceptable. Uh, people spending decades uh, of life of their life in a, in, a, in a cell and then exonerated. We see this a lot, um, and, and uh, released only later on in their whole life, just locked in a cage. Um, and then, and then beyond the obvious cases like that, I mean, uh, there's a question of what's just versus what's the law, what's on the books. Right. Um, you know, I think we've there's been a lot of ground made in seeing oh, imprisonment isn't an appropriate uh tool uh for responding to using certain drugs uh we've made a lot of progress there in the past uh you know we had to make that one on alcohol i guess I've, and i've seen kind of a comeback of, of that view which is unfortunate um but but uh actually to yeah. stop you there could you could you actually seg could you actually sort of digress into that a little bit i haven't heard that one myself what's, what's oh i don't know i mean it all you know with, with the way um, media works nowadays it's hard maybe hard to tell what views are having a comeback or just what views you're like kind of somehow finding or, or finding your right, way to or right. somehow coming to you through social media or or whatever um but yeah i've i've definitely seen some you know uh seemingly you know pretty reasonable and i guess good faith people arguing that you know we totally underrate prohibitionism uh of alcohol in you know in america oh, in the 20s uh, and um you know alcohol is actually really bad and and yeah alcohol is pretty bad uh and um and but but obviously it doesn't follow that prohibitionism was good. Um, I don't know. I've, so I, I have seen that. However strange that may be to some, which seems like a total relic of the past. But really, nothing, nothing uh, is, is 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 all gone apparently. Because yeah, um, I have seen a, a number of folks um, defend 
uh, the idea that, yeah, we're, we kind of underrated prohibitionism. We shouldn't have gotten rid of that, you know. Um, and I think it's kind of a backlash in some ways, though, because of what I was just saying of the ground that's been made in the last five, 10 years. It feels really, um, especially with, with with marijuana, the idea that someone should be locked in a cell for that or in some way that'll help them or, or fix it or, or God forsakes, they deserve it for, for consuming it seems totally outlandish, I think, to most people. Um, and 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 yeah, I think it basically takes that train of thought and it keeps expanding it, you know, just the same way you shouldn't be locked up in a cell for marijuana, you shouldn't be locked up in a cell for shooting up heroin or whatever, however horrible I think that might be for your life. Um, and, and then you take it further to something like um, violating others' rights. Okay. So this, so I think most of most of the audience of the Curious Task is probably more classical liberal libertarian, and that's where I come from. That's based, still what I, a large way, of, part of the way I view the world, and I view my prison abolition as kind of coming out of that. Um, and so I think a lot of libertarians and classical liberals like stop at the question of, well, you violated rights. Okay, well, what is our theory, or what are the ideas and practices around, you know, individual liberty tell us about what to do after? or during and after the violation of rights. And it feels like a lot of people just sort of automatically accept that like prisons is, is, Oh, well that's, you know, you violate rights. Well, that's the next step. Then, then there's imprisonment. And there's a lot of stories for that justification that we can talk about, you know, individually. But um, I think what a lot of people miss is that, uh, you know, classical liberal rights, individual rights, uh, libertarian rights, these are rights to self-defense of person and justly acquired property. And, uh, you know, whether yourself or others. And uh, they are not an unlimited license to do whatever you want, to treat whoever violated someone else's rights or your rights, um, either either past or, or present, however you like. And uh, there's, it's not like there's no limits on what you may do in self-defense of your rights and in, in enforcing your rights. You know, if you step on my toe, I maybe I can, you know, I can lightly shove you off to defend myself, but I can't shoot you in the head. That would also accomplish the means of enforcing my rights, of getting you off my toe, of my body, my, my, uh, so, but it obviously doesn't follow that I may do whatever I like, um, in enforcing my rights. And so there's a degree of proportionality. And I think this is so critical and, and, and it isn't talked about enough, um, in, in the theory of, of, of rights and wh- whatever grounds you think we have rights, whether consequentialist or deontological or virtue ethics or something else or some mix, um, you know, whatever it is, is, you know, pretty much everyone thinks we've got, we've got rights. There's things people can't do to us. This is the whole grounds of the liberal and libertarian view. And it's just that when it comes to what to do during and after the rights violations, I feel like a lot of liberals and libertarians uh, have devoted less thought to that. Uh, and right. have taken for granted various state solutions, such as imprisonment. Uh, right. You know, and so I think that's clear in, in the ca- in a lot of the cases of like property crime or, or petty theft or something like that, um, wh- in which it seems like imprisonment, caging a human being, like I said, in some sense, enslaving them, taking away their rights uh, entirely um, and subjecting them to whatever it is you're going to get subject to in prison. Now, that doesn't seem proportional to me to many crimes for which we lock people up. It's not just about, you know, the drugs and um, the nonviolent crimes, sex work, things like that. I think a lot of people start to see the logic of uh, why those things don't warrant imprisonment. Um, But then stop at, you know, but not all rights violations are made the same. 
so you can't stop at rights violations. You have to think about what kind of rights violations and when is prison in a, a proportional response to that or are there alternatives? What about restitution? That to me is the most obvious candidate in case, in, 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 and it seems obvious in cases of petty theft or crime, uh, property right. crime, things like that, to where you're actually making the victim whole by getting restitution for them rather than locking the perpetrator in a cage and, and, and in some sense enslaving them is not proportional to what they did to the other person. So, so yeah, I think there's, there's a whole range of kind of, of, of things in which we think people belong in prison for or don't. Um, I think we've made grounds on some of those, but I think even, even there, there's still more room to go. There's still other things or ideas commit us to in that realm. Right. And I want to dive a bit more into actually sort of like, you know, petty crime, petty theft restitution in, in a second. But before we depart fully, because you sort of mentioned effectively what some people refer to as a victimless crimes, you know, like drug abuse and so on and so forth. Things that are on the books uh, at the, you know, bye bye states that basically say, OK, like you should be doing that effectively, um, even if there's been no no harm to other people. Um, so before we move on from that and get into other victim crimes, let's say, because I want to dive into that. Do you think that's sort of like the most easiest category of bs frankly to shave off in the moral argument that if it's a victimless crime what are you even doing in prison not saying that there shouldn't be something you know if we are to have a state there shouldn't be help for people that you know are dealing with an addiction and so on i'm not not saying that right i'm talking about when it comes to prison itself is that like the easiest thing to carve off in your mind if you're uh, abusing drugs why are you in prison for example well yeah if i'm uh, speaking for myself uh yes um in fact i i think my earliest political view uh was that um was thinking you know um and talking to my dad about you know they, they put people in prison for for doing drugs or getting high they put people in prison for engaging in sex work and right. and 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 seem it seemed um almost off the bat for me trivially wrong i mean you said live and let live earlier i do think anarchism is live and let live and and you know um, and that has always been a guiding view um, for me. And and so for me, yeah, uh, it seems uh, clear that the last the last possible reasonable response to those sorts of things could be locking that person in a cage, however much you personally dislike them um, and however much harm they may bring to the people of the lives uh, to the lives of the people involved. Now, I sort of I think maybe I skipped over that a little bit because a couple of reasons. Uh, one, I guess it is trivial to me, but two, the phrase victimless crime, however um, obviously and intuitively correct that has always seemed to me, I think leads some people astray and can lead to some of that talking past each other. Um, someone sh- you know, someone throwing their life away because they're, they are addicted to drugs and they can't stop, they're a victim. Now, are they victim in the sense that their rights have been violated? No, but 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 this is the, right. the line of thought, I think, for a lot of people, and and they're not wrong. And so phrases like that are focusing too much on this distinction, I think, and for the for a number of reasons that I'll get to. But first, this one, that that there are victims. There are victims to people who are crushingly dependent on alcohol, not often not just themselves, but their family members, children, spouses. Uh right. You know, so um, I think people who like right, like liberals and libertarians who rightfully are stressing the victimless crime category, um, it's it, it doesn't do all the work. Maybe we we think it does. Um, and it sometimes can lead us to sound callous or perhaps ignoring that. No, there are people whose lives are made worse off uh, by these things. Now, is prohibition going us to make their life better? No, this is a that's a totally different dis- topic. 
uh, right. uh, you know, it's so important to differentiate because then you get the the almost obvious leap of, of, of okay, well, you acknowledge there's a victim. Well, then, then why don't you agree with me about imprisonment? It's like, well, no, now you're creating more victims. Um, so, uh, so I think, uh, you know, um, uh, victimless crimes, it's not that I think it's an incorrect classification necessarily. I agree there's a huge vital, vital, vital difference between rights violating behavior and, viol- and behavior which, which doesn't violate rights. But... Um, you know, there are the, there are these things that, that really do have negative effects on society that people see upfront firsthand, and it leads them to erroneously think certain solutions like imprisonment or the, and prohibition are the remedy and just ignoring the harm or the victims created, um, in a way can, 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 is the yeah, totally wrong rhetorical move, um, and pushes people further away in thinking those, uh, violence and, and prison are the solutions. The other reason I kind of maybe skip over this is because for good or bad, you know, for, for, for decades now, uh, you know, the people pushing for the rights of drug users specifically to, to, to say decriminalize marijuana and things like this have been fighting such a, such an important and just fight to do this. They have been a lot, I think, uh, uh, depending on this distinction between, um, victimless crimes or nonviolent offenders versus violent offenders. Now, again, mm. the difference between rights violating behavior and non-rights violating behavior is, is essential and crucial. And, no, and I don't think any conversation can be had that ignores it. Uh, right. However, um, people, this is not a panacea. And you look, it's easy. The, uh, you know, uh, number of people in state prisons for drug offenses and nonviolent offenses like that is huge. I think it might be yeah. you know, uh, like half or maybe less. However, there's federal prisons, and there it's a vanishingly small number. Federal prisons are filled by far more with people who are convicted of violent crimes and what would be rights-violating behavior and things liberal and li- liberals and libertarians. And I think most people, upon reflection and common sense, obviously need, you know, need uh, some sort of uh, uh, response to. And so there, I think I don't want to get so lost on, like, one category of prisoners, on, like, good prisoners and, uh, so you know, so to speak, uh, um, that, that, that warrant our mercy and forgiveness or, or, or something and such and others that don't, I think, um, that, that can, that can lead us astray and ignore the fact of the matter. Um, and, you know, mass incarceration in the United States, those, what did you say? 2.1 million prisoners. That's not going to be solved merely by focusing on nonviolent offenders and victimless crimes. Now that is obviously vitally important. And I, and I so much support anything that helps those people as well. It's not, I mean, it's not a zero sum game. But um, but it's easy to to just, you know, get lost in cosmetic reforms, uh, perhaps. Yeah. Um, and then leave and leave other people uh, unfairly there at the dry. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree with that. And yeah, and no, and, and one of the reasons I made that distinction and I agree with everything you said there sort of to get into this. And then the stat I pulled was one point two million ish. So I'm not sure. And that was year end 2021, according to this site. So, um, but, uh, but yeah, like, so I'm, I'm, I'm really sort of trying to get into the idea that, like, you know, of some of those folks, there's definitely, as you said, people that, you know, um, I said, like, you know, victimless crimes. And I actually agree with your point that that's sort of like a, a little troublesome when you get into that. But, you know, putting that nuance aside for a second, uh, then, you know, if, if we categorize like that, like that for just a second, and then we get into you sort of mentioned like some more, let's call it petty and minor crimes. And again, drawing these lines, I, I agree with you 100% saying something like, oh, you know, these people are good, these people are bad. Uh, uh, definitely, that's not a good way of going about it. But what I am trying to get to is sort of understand your different uh, approach or, or the way you think about this sort of stuff. And the punchline is I'm trying to leave the worst sort of 
rights violations and crimes toward the end. Yeah. Because I think that's sort of the steel man argument some have when it comes to yeah. prisons. So before we get to that, let's take a pause on sort of, you know, um, you know, like or like petty crimes, theft, uh, you know, uh, property damage, things like that. Um without getting into you going state by state and telling us what legislation should be passed or how, how uh, in, in our minds an anarchist society would work, what do you think the general approach to this these types of crimes should be? And it, let's do ideal theory for a second here. I mean, you mentioned restitution versus punishment, that kind of thing. Is that sort of the way you think of things and the way you approach it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and like I said, this, well, first I want to, I, I misspoke 2.1, no need to inadvertently embellish. I mixed up the numbers, 1.2 million prisoners is bad enough um, in the United States. Um, yeah. So, uh, and yes, I, I do think that you're still um, a, a, a critical, critical difference between, um, you know, uh, doing acts which, which, which don't violate anyone's rights, which may make your life worse off, um, and perhaps those around you, uh, however unfortunate, but uh, do not constitute rights violations or coercion. Uh, difference between those things and rights violating acts, coercion, however minor. Um, and I do think it's, it's, it's easy to, um, you know, is the fatal, the fatal mistake. And when, whenever people want to abolish something, whatever it is, what like going back earlier, radicals, abolitionists, whatever the cause for good or bad, uh, whether it's before or ahead of its time, who knows? Uh, um, you know, it's so easy to, to downplay whatever the serious concerns may be for the, the, the non-abolitionists or the anti-abolitionists. And in some ways it's, it's, it's such a thin line, too, between setting the record straight and, and making clear that, you know, so-and-so isn't as big of a threat or so-and-so isn't as big of a problem or so-and-so isn't as morally severe as uh, people might think. But uh, between there's a thin line between that and, and downplaying or, or, like I said before, with, with, with seeming callous maybe to people's uh, experiences uh, and concerns and, and worries um, and good faith concerns. And, uh, you know, so this is a trap that I feel like anytime any anyone who really wants to change anything, maybe even on the level of reform, but definitely on the level of radical systemic change, uh, you don't want to either uh, reinforce the uh, any mis- misunderstandings or, or misnomers about how severe a problem may be. And you and you but you also want to escape the, the mirror trap of, of downplaying real things. Right. Um, and so I think this is uh, the case here. I see, I think a lot of people on the left and a lot of prison abolitionists uh, downplay something like property crime, which a lot of times involves threatened violence against a person. Not, not always, but nevertheless, uh, 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 you know, sometimes things uh, in, in practice, you know, they, they, they overlook maybe when a person's life may be in danger or threatened just because the real thing at play is, is their car or whatever uh, property they have in question that's trying to be stolen. Um, and then I think also there's the there's the downplaying of the connection between property and person. I mean, you know, that that connection is to varying degrees um, um, close, I, I guess. Uh, you know, there's a huge difference between, you know, uh, my glasses, um, you know, and I don't know, um, the, 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 the McDonald's leftovers I have in the fridge or something. Like, like, right. some, like one thing is much more essential to me as a person and my projects. I am practically blind without my glasses. Uh, I cannot see past a few feet beyond my face. Uh, but they're still property. They're still outside of my body. Um, and so, so I think people need to be careful with this distinction. And it's a lot more apparent in, say, the case, again, of someone's car. Well, okay, is someone living in 
in near poverty and their car is the only means to get to their job? Or what if right. it's, it's, you know, they're, they're, uh, they're a cabbie and it's their cab or, or they're a food truck operator and it's their food truck. Okay. Well, you know, so, um, I think a lot of things that look, that are, are in fact property crime and are distinct and, and from bot- from bodily violence and violence against a person, like there is a distinction, but, but it's, it's kind of gradient and, and, and there's a spectrum. It's not either, or I don't, in my view, um, and that's pretty, pretty essential to me. And that's important to, to bring up in these discussions. Um, especially, you know, a lot of, a lot of people working at small businesses or things like that, you know, crime, you know, uh, the threat of stolen property for them is, 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 is much larger than, than say, you know, a huge big box corporation say, yeah, um, it's much closer to their livelihood and their means of survival. So with all that out of the way and said, um, Yes, I think restitution is massively underrated. Um, I think that people all too easily assume the necessity and justice of punishment as such. I'm I'm against punishment. I'm a punishment abolitionist, I guess, as well. Um, now, by that, I mean uh, force upon a person or the property. Um, for a number of aims, uh, you have, um, you know, deterrence to prevent others. You have say just justice in in a simpler sense that they deserve it. Um, or you have, um, excuse me, you have, um, a rehabilitative, uh, punishment and, and, or they, they will be better off for this force, uh, upon them. Uh, so you have a lot of these different theories of punishment and what justifies punishment. And I don't think any of them work. I think force is only about self-defense. Uh, uh, force can only be justified in self-defense. I think that's the core of the liberal libertarian view. It's 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 a it's extreme skepticism of violence and 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 and, and merely the minimum of, of violence necessary for self-defense um, and restoring conditions of non-violence. That's always the aim of violence. I think in 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 our view, uh, uh, it has to be restoring the conditions of non-violence. So, so with that said, um, I, I think you know caging someone for for um, stealing something, uh, um, however bad that may, you know, that may be really bad. Like a lot of the people trying, you know, defending imprisonment maybe aren't, aren't totally wrong about how, you know, how uh, detrimental that might be to someone's uh, livelihood. Um, but nevertheless, uh, if force is, is to be restricted, to, to be restricted to self-defense and to, to individual rights, merely to protect person and property going forward and caging someone merely because they, at some point had attempted to steal or steal something, doesn't seem uh, proportional or even necessary to the self-defense. Um, so you would, you know, you would need to know that person's going to do this again at this place in this time or such and such. Um, you know, so what is the alternative? I think it's restitution. Um, so this is the view that, that as opposed to punishment force, force can be used uh, merely to make the victim whole. And so I think this is, has to be understood as an extension of our self-defense. You know, insofar as you you have property that that's mine, if you're holding my car that I need to get to work, uh, well, that the conditions of nonviolence haven't been restored. Um, uh, so, so I think I think it's it's permissible and even and even obligatory to to if necessary use proportional force uh, to get your car back and to get restitution for damages um, or anything that you've been through or any harm visited upon you uh, in the process of, of that. Um, you know, maybe you missed days of work or something because you couldn't get your car, right? Uh, so I think um, I think restitution is super underrated for this fact. It makes the victim whole. This to me is so in line with liberal and libertarian 
rights and the view that we have on the, the, the role of violence in society and, and, and the justice of, of, of what kinds of violence. I think only in self-defense, and I think that includes restitution and being made whole insofar as you can uh, uh, by, the, by the perpetrator. That makes sense. And actually, we're just about over halfway through our time together. So we're going to take a quick break. So everyone, you're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Corey Massimino today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including... Randy T. Simmons, Travis Smith, and John Robson. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You listen to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Corey Massimino today. So, Corey, I think the first half of our chat was great. We talked about a lot. We were just trailing off there before the end of our first half talking about restitution. So just to bring the metaphor home a little bit, uh, I know every situation is unique, but just especially for people that aren't familiar with just, you know, this as a, you know, as sort of an alternative to imprisoning people, what what would restitution look like? You know, if someone stole my car and I lost five days of work, would it look something like, for instance, I get my car back or the value thereof? plus the lost wages for work. Like, is, is that the kind of thing you want to paint in people's heads when you're talking about restitution? Yes, yes. Uh, that's basically what it is. I think, you know, and this this doesn't have, this obviously um, has historical precedent as well. I mean, we use restitution often in our legal system, but um, often for civil issues and, and, and civil liabilities uh, as opposed to criminal ones. Uh, so I'm so I'm proposing, you know, to, to really what I'm proposing is to abolish criminal law as such, um, but, but, you know, merely in this context, it's to expand and extend the role and the reliance on restitutions, even into criminal, supposedly, you know, so-called criminal, uh, you know, as the state calls it, acts, or, uh, you know, as we were calling earlier, rights violating acts. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think restitution um, can play a huge role uh, in that. Uh, and, and, and we see this, too, in, in various um, uh, historical systems. Um, if we look at various, uh, you know, maybe quasi-stateless societies throughout history, um, like medieval Iceland or, or other various kind of uh, experiments, which might, by no means were perfect or a panacea or, or even better than, than modern, modern society, in my view. Um, but nevertheless, we can look at various historical experiments, I think, and glean maybe some certain things about political institutions and, and what's viable. Uh, and, and when we look at, at, at stateless or quasi-stateless societies, um, in history, there's a much greater reliance on restitution. So I think there's a reason right. for this. The, 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 the state, um, basically, you know, the, the state doesn't benefit from restitution to the, to the victim. Um, you know, uh, the, if, if, if we had a legal system that was more attuned, I think, to, to justice, but also just the demands of people um, and victims, uh, we would get a lot more, like these earlier systems, uh, focus on restitution some way making the victim whole rather than caging the perpetrator, which doesn't, except in some, in my view, uh, merely wrongheaded, retributive, abstractive sense um, when people say that somehow, you know, because this is the, the obvious retort, you know, um, uh, you know, and sometimes you can't really be made whole, even in some severe cases of theft. Maybe you lost your job because of that. 
you know, is right. merely getting a bunch, you know, a few, maybe a few weeks or months of your paycheck, I guess maybe some could be a plausible, but that's not going to get, you know, so, so, you know, no one can really be made whole. I mean, crime, you know, you have traumatic, it's traumatic. You're, you're, uh, oftentimes people are scarred from, from, from various crimes or scared further. Um, these are not cases for, uh, these are not arguments for imprisoning the perpetrator in my view, which doesn't negate that or make that any different. Um, but, Restitution can make a victim whole. And this idea that, well, you know, I'm really made whole as a victim by my perpetrator rotting away in a cage for their whole life. I think that's completely implausible. And I don't think it makes any sense. It's not. I mean, that's mere bloodthirstiness and it's mere it's mere empty right. retributiveness. Um, so I, I think we I think uh, we should be wary of, of when we start to indulge that that stuff, even in the hard cases. Right. Yeah, and then that's a perfect segue into what I want to talk about is is sort of the yeah. hard cases. So let's say you and I are yeah. talking to someone, and we get them to the point where they actually some. I, actually, let me take a step back and say I think a lot of people are comfortable sort of distinguishing the deed from the person often when it comes to, uh, you know, whether it's just somebody in that who in the state's view is committing a crime, like for example, doing drugs. But in many people's views, that's not as much the case anymore. Even petty crime, petty theft, people seem to. On, on one end, sometimes even understand and sympathize with the petty theft, like let's say, you know, stealing for hunger. Um, yeah. And on another case, some people just say, well, they did something bad, but the person isn't bad. A lot of people have a hard time crossing the line, for example, when uh, what happens is they're presented with someone they view that the person themselves is bad, for lack of a better term. This person is an ongoing murderer for the sake of discussion let's just say we are talking about someone who who you know takes pleasure in, in harming people or murdering them these are very small edge fringe cases but evil does exist in the world uh yes. how do you deal with that when someone says i agree with everything you say Corey, except those people that's where we can justify prison what, what kind of alternatives are, are there in your mind to dealing with these types of again very small and limited but still existing cases yes yes existing and uh, and, and don't want to fall into the pitfall of, of denying reality for your ideology. Um, so I think there, are, I think there are a couple of ways I've come to think about this. Uh, and um, so I think maybe the first, the first point is that we've been so so far only talking in terms of reactive solutions. Um, most of the best solutions aren't reactive. Um, it's easy to, to think about it that way, or especially in in, in, in a case like uh, in this kind of uh, realm and this topic. But, um, you know, most of the best solutions are proactive solutions. And I think that a lot of prison abolitionism is not really, it's less negative. It's less mere critical or deconstructionist, but more um, aspirational and uh, positive. Um, and it's, um, you know, it has, it's not, it's a positive, it can also be a positive program for the kind of institutions uh, that we want to see thrive. And uh, so I think um, one thing is looking at, the causes uh, of severe uh, evil, of severe injustice, of severe rights violations. Um, that's very, that's very thorny area. You know, you have, uh, you know, for, um, I guess it's, if we started with, you know, the, wor- the worst, the worst of the worst serial killing, um, serial raping, things like that. Um, now, it doesn't seem to me that. Um, these things have always plagued us like they have. Uh, I mean, serial killers uh, is kind of a, a modern um, phenomenon to an extent. Again, it's easy to downplay. We don't always have great historical data on things like that. 
but certainly within the last hundred you know or so years pretty pretty good and serial killing only seemed to start to come about uh, i think you know 70s 80s school shootings mass shootings did not start to rise until the last 20 years or so you know these things don't just happen as like a brute fact of society uh, what 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 goes into the causes of these things? Why are there marginal people who are committing these acts? And is there anything that can be done proactively on 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 the systemic level um, to where we think these things might be uh, totally averted in the first place, and we wouldn't have to react to them? And I don't know. Um, there are a couple, uh, I guess, maybe optimistic ways of thinking about it. Um, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, the way society views violence, um, the way society raises our kids, the kind of institutions we put our kids through in terms of compulsory schooling or, uh, you know, juvenile system, stuff like that. Um, I think those things play a role, uh, seem to must surely, uh, especially when you look at um, maybe the psychology of a lot of maybe mass killers or mass shooters mm-hmm. um, and maybe what they say, the ones that do in their uh, notes or writings. Right. Um, and there's a sort of like, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, vague or, or 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 abstract hatred of of of, of the system or whatever system they have been, you know, locked into or something. Right. And um, and so it feels like this sort of just you know this irrational you know explosion of evil. Then, as it seems like as a response to some of the stuff, um, um, you know, another area is is is, is how. Um, Society views gender and sex uh, and sexual assault and, and rape and these things. Um, I think there's a lot to be said in terms of proactively, in terms of teaching about sexual consent, teaching about uh, the prevalence of rape, um, the, how much rape goes unreported, uh, things like that. That can um, help proactively in terms of um, fostering a culture or, 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 or um, a set of norms um, that maybe proactively prevents a lot of violence. I think dismissing these things is absurd. Uh, be, again, because the proactive stuff is, is, is unseen. So, you know, in a way, cause we don't see the crime that doesn't happen then. So it's right. easier to ignore or think less of. Um, but, uh, it's just, it's, it's perhaps more important than the reactive things that we rely on, um, in a way. So, um, and, and so that's, that's sort of um, a vague, a vague uh, set of, of maybe concerns and possibilities. Um, I don't really know. I think this is super open-ended on like why some aspects of modern society seem to reap these intense, uh, but marginal, but intense and, and brutal and, and terrible uh, instances of evil. Um, I don't think it's a given. I don't think it's some uh, unavoidable fact of the universe. Um, and it feels like resigning to that is incredibly uh, wrongheaded and depressing and not fair to the potential future victims maybe that could be saved by, by thinking about and investing in these proactive solutions. Now, uh, in, term, in terms of uh, reactive, now, because I do think on some, you know, violence and evil is inescapable. There's no, I don't believe in a society that doesn't have these things. Those things have always been with humanity. Um, always uh you know certain manifestations maybe not but 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 the underlying right. thing always and and right. it's and it's dead end to deny that so 
I think in terms of reactive, I think one, we need to avoid the pitfall of making the reactive solution worse than the, the, the crime or the problem in general. Um, when we look at killers, we look at rapists, uh, the system is perpetrating a lot of these things. The prison system, the police, uh, whether guards, whether officers engaged in killing or sexual assault or raping and getting away with it or, or not to some extent, uh, uh, hopefully, maybe, um, or at least being held accountable in some way. Maybe the discussion of imprisoning um, something like killer cops we can talk about later if we have time. That's an interesting topic. But, but anyway, um, you know, so I think uh, uh, when we look at how prisons are, are in some sense um, just warehouses of factories of people and of trauma and of violence, of sexual violence, of, right. of psychological abuse, of torture, uh, in various ways, whether at the hands of other prisoners and the mercy of other prisoners or at the hands of mercy of the guards or both. Um, ultimately, we have to ask, is our reactive solution to violence merely relocating the violence or is it getting rid of the violence? Too much of prison is actually relocating the violence to within the prison walls and subjected then to various other prisoners, some of whom may be there for, for something as petty as doing drugs. Others may be there for some other worse things. Either way, I don't think anyone thinks, or hopefully vanishingly few people think that being inflicted sexual violence and abuse or psychological trauma or all of these things um, in a cage for, for days, for months, for years is an appropriate or even helpful, useful response to violence and crime. Um, and, and in part, uh, one of the reasons that this set of reactive solutions can make the problems worse, not just by relocating violence and hiding it and disguising it and making us blind to it, but it also, uh, I think can reap it later on. Um, you know, prisons, prisons are universities of crime as, uh, Kropotkin, uh, sort of, uh, uh, quips. Um, right. And, and that's and, and, and people, I think, forget this, that when people are sent to prison for whatever, however bad of crimes they, they, they've committed, um, they're being inculcated with with other people there um, suffering the prison system. A lot of other people there for the for similar or related or the same things. Um, so the social capital that prisoners build and have access to the norms and culture, the ideas uh, uh, around violence and, and, and things that they are um are isolated within and have no alternative to um, in many cases, I think reinforces it and makes it worse. I mean, you have things like when people get out of prison, you know, then they have find it harder to get a job. They face poverty. Maybe they turn to theft. That sort of thing is pretty common sense and, and is, and is a severe downside of prisons, but even, even beyond the, uh, uh, that just merely um, fostering a culture of violence, of retribution, of, 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 of bloodthirstiness uh, uh, is, is not going to make anyone better. Um, and, and, and in cases where then people come out on the other side and, and they're no better um, and maybe even, even worse um, in terms of what they think they're, you know, is permissible to do to other people. Uh, so I think that um, all of, all of those concerns aside, um, I think that one um Restitution, again, um, can play a role even in heinous crimes, I think. Um, however distasteful, I guess, I feel like that initially sounds. Um, again, uh, the alternative is what? Prison. How, again, how is, say, you know, a victim of, of actual violence, of interpersonal violence, made, made better or made whole by that? 
um, that, you know, no, nothing will get rid of the memory or the trauma, no, no prison or otherwise. There's no solution to that. And we get caught up with these, these, this idea that, that these things can be somehow wiped away um, by, right. by the black box of prison. Um, so I think restitution can play a role. I think uh, uh, there are, I'm optimistic about various alternatives that, you know, there's things, uh, people call it restorative justice is one as opposed to restitutive justice. Restorative justice is um, is kind of a practice that people develop and sort of work on and, and, and I think very helpful and works in some cases um, where, where perpetrator and victim are kind of brought together in a non-adversarial way and, 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 and hopefully to, to, you know, with the help of, 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 you know, maybe crisis counselors and, and friends and, and things like that, family, um, to again, try to, in some way, make the victim whole, I think, to bring about a sense of, uh, closure or conclusion or, or being made whole, um, from whatever happened. There's also, uh, you know, and so, one thing I want to say about restorative justice and restitutive justice is that it sound. I think it's easy to, to, um, view them as incomplete because it sounds like we're leaving a lot of details on the table. Like you said, Oh, something like, you know, you get paid for, you know, what your car is worth plus how, what the work you missed that day or something. But I think that can be a benefit of these systems where the people on the ground with the local details, local knowledge, lo- local relationships can in fact right. be a benefit. To some of these things rather than an outsider, um, or a person over and above uh, from a system of power who doesn't know any of the details on the ground, doesn't know the people involved, the community, the norms, the histories involved. I think this is a huge downside of the way policing and, prisoning, uh, and imprisonment operates in, in, in society um, and, and, and keeps it back from achieving maybe what could be a greater justice without it in terms of restitution or restoration of the people in the communities involved. There's also something that people call transformative justice, which is, I guess, a little more systemic um, or, or overarching than the other two. Um, and that, and that, 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 that's viewed a little more, again, proactively, you know, what are the conditions of, of crime, even violent crime of, of the way children are brought up or the poverty or, 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 or mental health, uh, accessibility and these kinds of things, um, that again, when they work, we don't know they work and it goes unseen. And when they don't work, then it's, it's obvious. Uh, now, Beyond all that, I I think I will get to the area where um, there's no alternative. Suppose you have a person who they don't just commit petty crimes. They didn't just like many crimes and so-called criminals. Um, again, uh, to distinguish between you know we think of this class. Some people are criminals. Some people aren't. And that's that's a dangerous way to think about it. And I think that's why you end up with locking people in a box and subjecting them to stuff and pretending like it doesn't exist or they deserve it or both. Uh, <laughs> um, and, and that's because people view it as, as society as criminals and non-criminals. And most crime happens uh, in the heat of the moment when people are young, there's all these shared factors. You know, there's not many elderly people going around committing, you know, why is this? Because people, it's often a heat of the moment. It's often an emotional impulsive act. It's all, and it's often an act people come to regret come to deeply regret sometimes, hopefully, not always. But nevertheless, we can't just break down society into this group and this group and this one group has no rights and we can lock them in a cage. That doesn't, that's not going to get us anywhere. And it's going to ignore the people who abuse that group. And it's going to ignore the more underlying unseen things. Uh, so I think it's a lost cause to, to, to the categories can become reified in a way. Um, and they aren't, you know, Crime is an act. It's not 
that some people are just criminals and therefore they're inherently more likely to commit crime by what fact of their nature? Uh, we, they have choice. Uh, so, um, so I think that our, our, our solutions need to be attentive to that. Now, uh, now sometimes there is no alternative to, uh, you know, restitution isn't viable or isn't, isn't going to do enough. Restoration is always takes both victim and perpetrator need to, in some sense, be open to that. Sometimes they aren't. Uh, so, and sometimes transformation is too late. I, you know, some, as I said, uh, sometimes reactive solutions are all we have, uh, unfortunately. And so, right. uh, I think in these cases, I think we have to look at what is proportional and what is an exercise of defense. And in some cases and in many cases, and I think the vast majority, and I think why I think, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm confident that I think that the vast majority of people justice demands absolutely deserve to be, to be let go of prison. I think pretty clearly because what they're subject to in prison is disproportionate to what they've done. Um, even in some really bad cases, even in rights violating behavior cases. Uh, now, I think uh, defense demands in some cases, uh, regrettably more. And uh, because some people are, are, are already serial offenders, say. Now, I'm not, I, now, I don't think, I think it's a dangerous trap to fall into to assume people's behavior in the future based on what they've done in the past. Um, and that can, that can lead to all sorts of, I think, terrible justifications for things. But nevertheless, some people at certain times are ongoing threats to the people around them, unfortunately. These are, I think, what people imagine are all the people in prison. They're just constant ongoing threats and not just minor threats of, again, like some sort of petty crime, but, but severe right. violent threats. And so right. I think in these cases, I think a form of ongoing, uh, uh, but, uh, temporary if possible, um, uh, based on again, local factors and, and, and you can never tell this from above, or just like you can never tell what the supporter of prisons who belongs in a prison from above without knowing the details of the case and the facts on the ground and the people involved. Uh, but I think, uh, ongoing defense can be justified. Uh, and sometimes that manifests as a ongoing confinement. Okay. So this is an area where have I abandoned my prison abolition? And this gets back to what I started on. What are the terms we use for things? What is it that we want to abolish? Now, I think the thing about prison that makes it heinous is the property claim, key, the, this, the enslavement claim, the, the, the claim to do whatever you want to another human being, to subject them to, to, to whatever, to have no rights uh, for them, no privacy, no rights from violence, uh, uh, no rights to say make or save an income, um, no rights to communicate with the outside world, things like are rather incredibly confined or, or on the, the captor's terms. Uh, so I think that uh, uh, regrettably and unavoidably, there are cases where there are uh, vanishingly few people are ongoing, not just ongoing threats of any crime, but ongoing threats of severe, violent crime, of murder, of rape, of things that proportionality can oblige us to return to ongoing confinement. Now, this can take many forms. We really, as a legal system, I think uh, it underrates house arrests 
that can take a, that's a form of confinement in a way. I think house arrest um, can can inflict be overrated by the people who want to rely on that instead of prisons, because um, because there's a lot of surveillance questions and security uh, state questions with house arrest, and it's absolutely right. no panacea and gets uh, uh, implemented in various um, unjust or, or 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 unfair ways. But house arrest, you're not subject to the violence, to the torture and abuse and the lack of rights that prisoners are subject to. So I think defense can can justify ongoing confinement in, 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 in an incredibly small number of cases, but in a, in a, in a number of cases. Uh, and I don't think this means we need to turn to imprisoning people in the sense mm-hmm. of basically enslaving them. We can confine people while respecting their rights. A lot of... Uh, 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 there's been there's been there's been some um, um, work on on ideas of again house arrest as an alternative um, uh, and and also um, letting these vanishingly small number of ongoing threats uh, choose the nature and and place of their confinement. Just because defense warrants the temporary confinement of someone doesn't mean you can confine them to anywhere you wish. You can't lock them in your basement. You can't just treat them however you wish. You still have right. to respect their rights, and we can do that. And prisons don't. <laughs> prisons subject the people that are confined within them to far more than defense would ever warrant uh, enslavement and abuse. And 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 the alternative, I think, uh, uh, of of either decentralized confinement in things like house arrest or other forms of technology, uh, or a form of confinement to where. Uh, the confined can choose where and the nature of, and they can live their life still, uh, you know, communicate with the outside world, not be subject to isolation and torture, be free from violence from the people around them and their guards, right. uh, be free to, if they want, earn a living. Maybe they can't uh, necessarily leave uh, so far from their confined uh, areas, but as we know now, that absolutely does not prevent people from, if they wish to earn some sort of income to save maybe for when they uh, um, have opportunities beyond that uh, or just, or just during that uh, respecting their rights to be, you know, seen interact with family and friends and things like that. Um, so I think basically we get into the really tricky area where a number of prison abolitionists, I think view any confinement at all as uh, a repudiation of the project. And I don't think that. I think that true defense warrants mere confinement, mere, uh, in some cases. Um, but imprisonment, no. Locking someone in a cage and for them to, to, to be there with nothing and no rights and no, and no um, ability to have any say in where they are confined or under what conditions they're confined uh, and where they're subject to violence by, by the people around them. Um, right. That goes beyond mere confinement and mere defense. So that's my answer for that. I, maybe that's unsatisfying to both sides because the abolitionists view it as going against abolitionism. And and to be clear, I view many cases of confinement as wildly unjustified. Again, I think the vast majority of crimes and the people in prison and all this stuff uh, shouldn't be confined at all. That's disproportionate right. and, and, and perhaps even unnecessary and worse uh, or worsening to the situation. And then on the other side, I think the non-abolitionists are, I guess, going to view this as like a squeamish exception to the rule. Um, and, and, you know, uh, I don't know what I, necessarily what I'd say to either side on, on that, but I think that's where the logic takes us and where opposing imprisonment and violence um, for the sake of violence brings us. Yeah.
No, absolutely. I think I think that was a great answer. And sometimes, as you said, sometimes unsatisfying okay. to both sides is actually the <laughs> the best way to go to give people to Most something to think about. So, so yeah. <laughs> so I thought that was great. And and actually, with that, we we have come basically down to the end of the wire here for the time we have to spend together today. Uh, regrettably, uh, maybe you can come back. We could talk about this kind of stuff again. I have other notes yeah. we didn't get to, which is a good problem to have, as I like to say yeah. it. But for now, we have to <laughs> wrap things up. So. Let me bring you to the official wrap-up, Corey. In each episode, I want to make sure that the guest ultimately has the last word to sort of tie things up. So let me just say to you, as our official last part of the conversation here, you know, we've talked about a lot. For you to bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of today's question, let me ask you, what do you hope are ultimately the main takeaways uh, for someone listening to you here on how we abolish prisons, but, you know, prison abolition in general. In other words, if you wanted someone leaving here uh, to take away one, two, or just a few things, if anything, from this about an hour we spent together, what do you want them to leave with? Uh, well, I guess for um, there'll be some small number of you will already be prison abolitionists, maybe, who agree with what I was saying already. Um, in which case, I don't know. I guess I would say... Uh, don't think it's too easy or something. I don't know. Acknowledge the nuances, acknowledge uh, the hard questions um, as, as complex as, as they may be. Um, Cause it's so easy to get lost. Uh, like you said, in, in such a noble ideal, right. Uh, as I really do think it is, but that, but that can't be all there is to the story. Uh, and then to the flip side, the what I assume is the majority of your audience. Uh, I, who are not prison abolitionists, but maybe interested in it or sympathetic, or maybe they're just wildly skeptical. I don't still, I don't know. Um, I guess I would say um, don't assume prison abolitionists is like, like uh, don't assume prison abolitionism is a uh, monolith uh, uh, or like um, mere naivete, I think, which is easy with a lot of abolitionist causes or radical causes. I think they come from, Yes, you know, or romanticism of trying to see a di radically different world, but I think that's that can be good. But I think they also come from really looking at the hard problems of crime, looking at the failures of what, uh, like we've started on, um, is the largest prison state in the world, um, and looking at uh, what really are the alternatives, and especially to liberals and libertari libertarians listening. Um, there are things that liberals and libertarians believe that are uh, arguably just as radical or bizarre or counterintuitive to the vast majority of people as prison abolitionism. Um, and, and again, like I said, I think uh, it's easy to underrate how liberal and libertarian arguments uh, can easily get us um, and, and, and actually start to commit us to something that looks a lot like the prison abolitionist arguments um, for reasons I said earlier. So, so, yeah, don't underrate the nuance on whichever, you know, whatever side you're not on. I think that's great. We'll leave it there. So, Corey Massimino, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thanks for having me on. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Segay. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Curious Task.